race, privilege, code switching, inclusion, psychological safety. You know, there's so much that I learned reading Dr. Laura Morgan Roberts' Harvard Business Review series, Advancing Black Leaders. And I'm thrilled that she's going to be joining me on the podcast today to go deeper into that series and her work on the topics of diversity, inclusion, and belonging. Dr. Laura Morgan Roberts is a professor of practice at the University of Virginia Darden School of Business. She's also the co-founder and principal of RPAC Solutions. So we're going to be covering a lot of ground in this discussion, and I'm really excited to dig into that. And we'll be back with that after a brief word from our sponsor. 21st Century HR is a podcast exploring how to build better businesses through modern people practices and approaches. It's brought to you by my firm, Amplify. Amplify provides HR executive search and strategic consulting services that help companies build better organizations. From employer brand development and execution to global talent strategies, Amplify develops custom solutions that help clients from Hootsuite to SpaceX optimize their recruiting capabilities. Amplify also hosts a new community for HR leaders called the Ecosystem. The Ecosystem was designed to bring modern HR leaders around the world together to share ideas, inspiration, and support. Learn more at AmplifyTalent.com. Hey everyone, welcome to 21st Century HR Podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt, and I am thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Laura Morgan Roberts. Laura is the professor of practice at the University of Virginia Darden School of Business, the co-founder and principal of RPAC Solutions, and also the co-author of a Harvard Business Review series on advancing black leaders that we're going to be digging into in today's show. So, Laura, thanks so much for coming on. If you wouldn't mind, why don't you give the listeners a brief introduction and background on you? Thanks for having me, Lars. I am delighted to be here today to talk about this work. Um, This work is part of my overarching interest in understanding how to maximize human potential individually and collectively through our work and our work organizations. And a core piece of that process is in uh, welcoming, embracing, and leveraging the differences um, between us and uh, some of the differences and contradictions within us. And so I have a lot of fun thinking and talking about questions of inclusion, uh, primarily in MBA classrooms, now at UVA Darden, but I've taught at several other business schools as well. Uh, My background is in organizational psychology. And I would say I am still a true blue psychologist who cares about the human side of the enterprise and seeks to enhance the quality of our lived experiences while we're at work through my research as well as my consulting and teaching. I'm a mom, I have two school-age kids, so I'm very conscious of how many of the patterns that we develop in early childhood, we carry those assumptions and behaviors throughout the rest of our life, especially when we're setting our expectations for uh, truly becoming our best selves in everything that we do. Yeah, and so for for listeners that aren't as familiar with uh, academia, your role and your kind of focus is professor of organizational behavior. What does that typically cover? 
Oh, organizational behavior covers, um, as I said before, the human side of the enterprise. So we're interested in questions of employee motivation, satisfaction, engagement. We want to know how people can build and sustain high quality relationships at work with a wide range of stakeholders. That would include your coworkers or your teammates, but we'd also be talking about your mentors, um, people that you may be mentoring and developing, uh, your clients, customers, and other people in the community who are affected by the work of your business or your organization. Yeah, that is a that is a big and, and dynamic world. So I imagine uh, <laughs> I, I can see how that's going to pique your curiosity on a lot of different layers. Um, you know, when you when you kind of look at the field of HR today, we're, we're having a lot of conversations around and I'd say the conversations that had you know, for a long time been really rooted on the topic of diversity is really starting to broaden now to talk about uh, terms like inclusion and belonging and kind of, as you mentioned, psychological safety. Um, how do you, when you think from your perspective of, of how all of these different terms are, are intersecting in the workplace today, what, what do you think about? How, how do you see those things coming together and, and kind of shaping how organizations are approaching them? Oh, Lars, that's a great question. I think it's a wonderful evolution. Um, when we think about uh, when organizations began uh, devoting focused attention and resources to questions of diversity and inclusion, it was really in response to some legislative and social pressure where individuals who were clearly um, and legally marginalized for decades and even centuries um, in the mid 20th century began to mobilize on behalf of uh, their right to work and have the same opportunities for growth and development and reward within their careers as other members of society had had to that point. So people on the margins at that time included a number of protected categories, uh, members of those protected categories around race and gender, um, religion, uh, now we talk more as well about age and ability status and, of course, sexual orientation as being important dimensions of difference that need to be um, welcomed and honored and recognized in the context of our work. Over time, we've shifted from a purely legalistic response to one that tries to help organizations to be more proactive and take the initiative because they recognize that the individuals within their organizations are their greatest source of competitive advantage. And so there's the business case for diversity that was associated with representation right around the turn of the 21st century. You've got a lot of energy and, and mobilization around bringing in people from different backgrounds with different perspectives because they can increase innovation and help to shape organizations of the future. You know, this is all at the same time as we were starting to understand HR and the role of HR um, as a strategic arm for the organization itself, not just the personnel or compliance side of implementing policies and routines, but really being thought 
partners in trying to understand how human capital would serve as the vital and inimitable resources that would help organizations to thrive for years to come. So you see this diversity and HR conversation moving in the same direction. Um, And likewise, in the HR space, uh, firms have started to realize that employees can show up to work every day and they can receive a paycheck and they might not even break any rules that (laughs) raise any red flags or um, anything. But that doesn't mean that they're fully engaged or that they're contributing or maximizing their potential at work. And so we started to try to focus more on what it would take for individuals to feel that they're fully engaged, um, what motivates them to do their best work when they show up, and what helps them to grow and develop other people in the context of their work as well. So it's not just this dog-eat-dog, zero-sum kind of game, but People are engaging in development and learning in more collaborative ways. That was important for the diversity space as well, because the representation conversation is one that people often see or have framed, unfortunately, as a zero-sum conversation. As in, if we hire more people from category X, it means they're taking up space from individuals from category Y who either A, have already been there, or B, you think might deserve a space more. And so that conversation can become um, written with a lot of um, deeply held assumptions and conflicts about who deserves a space and the right to be at the table. And you see, it's difficult to move from those kind of conversations into this collaborative zone for learning together and innovating together and making ourselves vulnerable so that we can acknowledge our mistakes, learn from our mistakes and move forward in, in more powerful and innovative ways. Uh, So we started then to talk more about, the need to focus, yes, on getting diverse perspectives in the room, but also creating organizational cultures where those diverse perspectives would be welcomed. So it's not just checking the box because we've hired XYZ people, again, from a compliance and personnel standpoint, but really looking at who we have within the organization and trying to create a culture that allows them to maximally engage from a position of strength, um, that welcomes and accepts the differences that they bring and you know, helps them to show up at work every day with the feeling that they too belong in the organization and have valuable contributions to make. Well, yeah, and you hit some really important points, I think, of the evolution of, of thinking uh, around diversity and really getting into inclusion and belonging and, and even psychological safety. And you explore all of these things in your Harvard Business Review, uh, Big Ideas series, Advancing Black Leaders. So I really, I enjoyed the series. Um, I learned a lot from it, and there's a lot I want to dig into uh, with you on it. But before we even start uh, getting into the the sections and the content and the learnings, um, I'm always fascinated about origin stories. So w- where did the idea yeah. for the series come from? Uh, well, first, thank you for 
um, for recognizing the series and for creating the opportunity for us to discuss to discuss it further. I mean, the origin was that uh, we felt that there needed to be more public conversations about race for us to truly advance inclusion, diversity, equity, and belonging in organizations that until we can talk squarely about race and the experiences of being included or excluded on the basis of race, we won't fully understand how organizations function and what organizations need to do so that everybody feels most included within the workspace. So that was our desire, our core desire. Um, The origins of the big idea piece um, were initiated by research that a group of us began to conduct at Harvard Business School. So Harvard Business School uh, decided at the in response to uh, some black alumni, uh, Benny Wiley at the helm, uh, Taryn Swan, then coming in as well as uh, the director of this project to commemorate the founding of the African-American Student Union at Harvard Business School. So the ASU was founded in 1968. And in 2018, Harvard Business School recognized that founding of ASU in a number of ways. Um, there was a lot of programming on campus around race and understanding the role that race had played in the history of Harvard Business School. We also conducted research to track the careers of African-American and Black Harvard Business School alumni and learn more about how their career progress uh, was similar to, but different, also different in many ways from their counterparts from different racial backgrounds. And as a part of that research process, um, we decided to open up to the field more broadly people from all over the country who were also asking these kinds of questions around race and the Black experience and compile these research studies into an edited volume. And so that volume, Race, Work, and Leadership, New Perspectives on the Black Experience, was published by Harvard Business Review Publishing, and it was released in September of 2019 and became the... um, sort of the seedbed, I guess you could say, for our opening piece in the Big Idea series toward a racially just organization. Yeah, and in the series, so you, you have a lot of interesting uh, information and data around just the evolution of kind of focused DNI efforts within companies and and where they're making progress and uh, and many times where they're not. And, you know, I'm curious on the, on the HR side, we have especially in medium, large size companies, um, so many organizations uh, nowadays have a dedicated diversity and inclusion uh, effort, if not uh, a leader and a team kind of driving those efforts. But the, the progress has really been incremental at, at best. And you share some statistics, um, particularly in the, in the technology sector where African-Americans make up 1.9% of executives and five, only 5.3% of professionals. So, what are companies missing? I think that companies are still concerned about um, making people feel uncomfortable or unsettled with the power dynamics within their organization. 
what do I mean by that? If you look at organizations, it's looking at the statistics that you've laid out, but also beyond in other sectors as well, looking at the stratification or you know, the, the dispersion of talent across the organization, who's at the most senior levels in the organization? Who tends to have the most con- access to and control over valued resources for the organization? And who tends to drive the strategy? Like whose voices tend to be in the room when core strategic decisions are being made. Those individuals haven't changed in terms of their profile uh, very much over the past 50 years, despite all of the progress that we've made in focusing more on diversity and inclusion in organizations. We still have the same prototype for a senior executive leader in an organization who Uh, tends to play a strong role in shaping strategy or dictating strategy, um, shaping culture, and uh, distributing resources. And that prototypical leader is still white male in um, these large and medium-sized U.S. organizations, but a a lot of small organizations as well are still uh, mimicking that pattern. So then what are we doing in our diversity inclusion efforts so that um, we're having more conversations about diversity and inclusion, but this issue of stratification is not changing very much. Uh, Why don't we see more diversity at the most senior levels of these organizations? And I think in part it's because the ways in which we frame our work around diversity and inclusion Um, the types of programs and seminars that are being offered are programs and seminars that um, sort of focus on the feel-good aspects of diversity and inclusion, um, but don't generally push people out of their comfort zone to think about some of the ways that they may be intentionally or inadvertently Uh, reinforcing the inequality that exists in the organization. So for instance, you probably know, Lars, that one of the most popular programs around DNI right now is implicit bias training, right? Yep. So implicit bias training is super hot and I'm not anti-implicit bias training. I certainly draw upon research and implicit bias and most of the work that I do in this space. And I think any responsible um, scholar or consultant would do the same. Executives and emerging leaders all need to understand the cognitive biases that lead us to jump to conclusions and make decisions about things that can be flawed. Um, and that our flawed decision-making can have very serious consequences. Um, Sometimes it's quite subtle, but other times it can even lead to life and death consequences. Um, When we're talking about police forces, uh, we're talking about medical teams, uh, we're talking about preschool educators who are more likely to uh, suspend or discipline more seriously African-American boys than kids in any other racial category. And these are when these kids are three and four years old. I mean, these are very serious consequences that can result from implicit bias. So I think it is really important that organizations are focusing on implicit bias and raising awareness of implicit bias. So then my question is, are we doing this work in a way that 
is really pushing us to adopt new strategies that we might consider anti-bias. Are we pushing organizations to say, how are we engaging in implicit bias in our day-to-day practices within our own organization that may be creating internal disadvantages for us or for our clients or um, customers or other stakeholders? Uh, The risk is that people walk away from a session on implicit bias, for instance, feeling like, oh, yeah, well, we all have biases. So it kind of normalizes it. And it doesn't push us to make any kinds of changes in our practices or in our power structures that would lead to a different set of um, demographic profiles uh, to be represented at all levels of the organization, including the, the most senior levels. So I mean, that's one example. Um, I think there are other examples of diversity and inclusion, uh, popular work that anchors on the business case for diversity. That one is still really, really popular, though maybe not as hot right now as implicit bias, but it's still kind of the, the foundation of most of these organizations' commitment to put senior leaders in charge of DNI efforts, as, as you've noted. And so one of the things that we talk about in our piece on advancing black leaders is um, the shortcoming that is inherent in the business case for diversity. That the business case for diversity often stops short of pushing organizations to make the kinds of changes that uh, would truly reflect anti-bias practices. Um, because they are continually looking for another piece of evidence or just enough a justification uh, from a financial standpoint to invest in increasing diversity or increasing equity within the organization. And you know what we say is, look, sometimes the bottom line is going to point you toward some more biased practices, right? Uh, you know, pricing strategies are essentially based on how much can I get away <laughs> right. with charging? You know, not how affordable can I make this? You know, to the person who has the least amount of resources. Like that's not the question that we're talking about in marketing meetings. Is how much can I get away with charging for this, or what will the market tolerate? You know, that's the way that we frame it. You know, where's the, the supply and demand? So when you're going down. On that that path or that train of thought, you see, um, it can lead you to make a certain set of decisions that are economically viable, but may not serve the interests of those who are marginalized um, currently or historically. And so then a moral case has to be brought to the table um, in conjunction with the business case so that leaders can make Uh, more holistic or well-rounded choices about the kinds of strategies that they want to pursue, you know, at least confront the trade-offs, name the trade-offs and, and confront the trade-offs. You know, there's a lot of coverage right now about child labor exploitation in 
the Congo, um, and particularly where young children are being um, used to dig and mine for um, the chips that are used in our cellular technology and that the working conditions are intolerable. You know, we also think of a lot of other really, really large, hugely successful companies with massive brands um, in a number of sectors who, when we look at their global supply chain efforts, um, they are promoting different forms of exploitation and the workers who are often being exploited uh, tend to be brown and black workers in parts of the world where they have less access to economic resources and therefore, you know, have to take whatever jobs are available at the time. So it, it becomes the, the responsibility of the senior executives and the board to decide, you know, how far are we going to go with our practices, a business case might say, you know, hey, we're looking at trying to maximize our profit, so we want to reduce our labor costs. A moral case would say, you know, if we're trying to uh, build racially sustainable practices, then we have to engage in this process a bit differently and, and give another look to the ways in which we might be reinforcing inequality uh, rather than trying to reduce or mitigate it. Uh, some of the companies who have made different choices, at least around political or PR, I say political, not in terms of elections, but in terms of like socially charged issues that, um, that would affect their brand or their reputation, uh, like a Starbucks with Howard Schultz when, um, the um, Black Lives Matter initiative, uh, Ferguson, the Ferguson and, um, and Michael Brown shooting took place. You know, at that time, uh, Starbucks wanted to be at the forefront of trying to initiate race-based conversations. And it didn't go so well that time. <laughs> so, they, <laughs> you know, they tried and they wanted to do the right thing. And it didn't actually, uh, because of the way that it was implemented, um, it, it didn't go as smoothly as they wanted. And we, we make reference to that in our article. Um, but then a couple of years ago, when the Philadelphia, or last year, when the Philadelphia incident took place, where um, two customers were not treated kindly and um, there was a, a lot of evidence that pointing to the fact that they were treated differently because of their race and gender. They happened to be black men. Um, the firm chose to close their operations for an entire day to engage in the work for, to engage the workforce in a day long implicit bias training. Um, so that was clear. That was a moment where they said, okay, we know we're going to lose sales for that day, uh, but we want to make a statement on moral grounds, first of all, that this, um, this issue needs to be addressed in a big and public way, um, and to try to provide some kinds of resources that can help to develop our workers so that they'll be better able to respond in the future, and we won't lose business over time you know, because of this, but it was a clear trade-off, right? Um, 
Are you going to press pause on some of your current practices, invest in the diversity and inclusion um, from the HR perspective? Or will you just keep moving on with business as usual and say, well, you know, that's just a cost of doing business. There are going to be some casualties along the way. But, you know, by and large, you know, we're still comfortable with the way that we're doing things. Those are the questions senior leaders have to confront today. Um, And I think that's another big change in terms of 21st century HR management um, and just corporate leadership in general. These kinds of questions and social issues around trade-offs between the uh, business case and the moral case are really on the forefront in a number of dimensions. And you can't just put on your blinders and say, oh, I'm just keeping it strictly business. You know, that was kind of the language of the 80s, right? It's like, keep it strictly business. You don't talk about politics at work. Don't talk about religion at work. We're only focused on business, the bottom line. That's all that matters. That's all that counts. Not so anymore. You know, not not in our digital age. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, when you look at examples like the Starbucks example after Ferguson, I mean, despite how well-intentioned it might have been. I mean, it's hard for some of these things to not come across like uh, a bunch of white guys in a room coming up with something that they, they think will, will, will resonate. It will create a conversation and, and that, you know, it's just, it's hard for those without really having, uh, you know, meat behind them to make much of an impact other than, you know, cosmetic. And frankly, those are typically the ones that, that are actually going to create more of a, you know, eyebrow raising than uh, than than creating the conversations that, that they may have wanted it to create. Um, I think you you raise an interesting point, which um, which I'm thinking about. A lot of the listeners uh, to the podcast are HR executives and HR leaders, and I think when you think about implicit bias training, um, the the point you raised around that training often normalizing the perspective that everybody has bias. You know, it's interesting. Like I never really thought about it that way, but that does. Um, you know, clearly that if you if you're normalizing it across all sectors and demographics, there's a real risk because, uh, you know, bias isn't weighted equally. You know, there there are populations that have a much higher burden of bias on them than others. And, and the idea of thinking that, uh, oh, everybody has them and it impacts everybody equally is dangerous. Uh, so that that I think is, is definitely a good takeaway for listeners when it comes to thinking about unconscious biases is, is making sure that that training also reinforces the inequity of bias. That's right. And holding people accountable for the ways in which they enact that bias. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so there's the unconscious bias, but then there are our own choices and decisions. And many African-Americans have anti-Black biases in certain dimensions because they too have taken in the social input and been socially conditioned and cognitively conditioned to associate blackness with criminality and whiteness with innocence Um, in terms of standards of beauty there's you know so much in the mainstream media for centuries Um, in literature and arts and other representation in the West of Western beauty and European ideals of beauty that are only questioned publicly when you have a year like 2019, when I think right now, the latest, there, there are five 
women who have all won like national or global beauty competitions, yeah. Miss USA, Miss Teen USA, Miss America, Miss World. And I think there's another. And they're all either black or of African descent. So then it raises this conversation about, oh, wow, look at this different standard of beauty that's being acknowledged and recognized. Isn't this interesting and unique? But from a day-to-day perspective, you know, many people are just looking, flipping through magazines or TV channels or movies and, you know, making these quick assessments or judgments about who looks nice or who doesn't look nice. But you could have those same associations. One person might use that to justify like hiring or firing another individual on the basis of their personal appearance or their hairstyle or something like that. Whereas another individual may have been similarly exposed, but could regulate the impact of those biases (laughs) on their hiring and managerial decisions. So that's really where we want to get people. Even if we have to normalize the bias, yes, we want to acknowledge that different biases have a differential impact. But two, we also want to give people a sense of agency so that they can better intervene in how they might enact those kinds of biases. So the next time they're on the judging panel, they might be able to adopt a more um, fair and equitable set of criteria for who would get selected, whether it's a beauty pageant or for um, a new promotion to a high potential leadership program. Well, yeah, and you have a section in the series on code switching. And I want to yes. I want to explore that a little bit because obviously you you, you share um, some really tangible uh, impacts of how you know code switching specifically for Black employees are having to adjust and adapt to kind of fit into more white oriented cultures in the workplace. And when you think about organizations that are are creating cultures where all of their employees, but especially African American employees can bring their whole self to work. What is that like when you, when you find, when you, in your research, when you come across companies that uh, really encourage, don't just encourage that, but they have real environments and cultures built around that. What does that look like? Oh, it's usually cultures that are not afraid of deviance. Mm. Now, <laughs> so many cultures are built <laughs> with the hope and expectation that as people buy into the culture, it will minimize the deviance, right? The emphasis is on shared boundary, I mean, shared values and identifying what we all have in common in terms of our aims and our beliefs and aspirations, and then conforming to that culture. And Code switching (laughs) becomes an interesting dynamic uh, because African-American workers, even when they might buy into the values of their company, um, there's still other dimensions of difference around which they might deviate culturally. Uh, They have different preferences in terms of their interests, their artistic tastes and styles, the way that their hair naturally grows out of their head, 
you know, the curl pattern. This is not an act of intentional deviance or, or trying to violate the organization culture in any way, shape, or form. It's just merely showing up and being oneself. Um, and that can be threatening and disruptive for many organizations with strong cultures or who are who are so invested in the idea that you know, we have to have a strong identity and a strong brand, which means that, you know, everybody needs to kind of look at the certain way and provide a consistent experience for the customers. And, you know, we've heard this in the professional service firms for decades with the leading consulting firms and the leading financial service firms um, that, you know, the client wouldn't respond as favorably if we don't all come across in the same way. So that though puts a greater burden on individuals who already don't fit or align with the culture because of their identities. So then black workers have to do an extra set of emotional and social steps and psychological steps every day just to prep their routine for proving that they truly do fit the culture. You see what I'm saying? So Courtney McClooney's piece um, with her colleagues documents in, in great detail the costs of having to engage in that psychological, social, emotional process of go- prepping this routine every day to try to prove that you truly do embody the culture, you fit in the culture. Um, and our piece, which references research from our book, Race, Work, and Leadership, we talk about facades of conformity. And this is also a related conversation. It's talking about how minority workers feel a greater burden or pressure to pretend that they buy into the culture wholeheartedly and they go along with everything that the culture values and represents wholeheartedly. Uh, Because if they deviate, the cost of deviance will be greater Mm. for them than it would be for someone who doesn't differ on identity standpoint, um, who isn't burdened with bias and negative stereotypes about their competence or about their character um, just because of their group identity. You know, in short, the folks who shape the culture tend to shape it in their own image. So the culture tends to reflect white male patterns of behavior And it's very comfortable and it's easier for white men to fit into that culture. And when white men deviate from the culture, people don't question their integrity, their loyalty, their commitment to the firm at the same level as when people from other groups would deviate from the culture. So you see, it's harder on two levels. It's harder because you have to fit into a culture that isn't naturally yours. But then it's harder because if you do it wrong, you know, if you deviate, you're kind of stepping on a minefield and somebody's going to say, boom, I knew they didn't fit here anyway. Right. So it's that kind of process that creates a significant amount of anxiety and undermines people's ability to be truly authentic. It's cognitively taxing. So if you're having to think about that, then you're not as able to easy, you're not as able to easily immerse yourself into 
the work itself and just get on a single track mind of only thinking about the work project and the work output. You're also having to think about all of these other social dynamics too. So that's tricky. You know, so your original question was, um, what do organizations do doing that allow people to truly bring their whole selves to work? And I said, well, it's the organizations that are not afraid of deviance. Now he's saying here across the board, this is the organizations that welcome um, divergent perspectives and opinions that invite divergent perspectives and opinions as they're engaging in strategic decisions. So we mentioned psychological safety earlier, and this is a point at which I would really point um, point you to Amy Edmondson's work on psychological safety because it's creating that vulnerable space in which people don't have to pretend like they have all the answers and they never make any mistakes. Um, that allows people to learn in a host of ways. And certainly here, uh, we want people to be able to learn from their differences, not feel like they have to hide or suppress those differences. I would say as a caveat, bringing your whole self to work doesn't mean let it all hang out, no boundaries, no filters. <laughs> I'm not an advocate for that. Um, we're really talking about finding generative points of connection between individuals. <laughs> so everything that comes to mind uh, doesn't need to be shared because it's not necessarily helpful or useful or going to add value to others. Oftentimes what we think is our authentic reaction is an impulsive expression of our biases that we actually need to check. Um, so, you know, I, I do think that there are some fine lines uh, and some boundaries that, that still need to be held in place, uh, but there's a lot more work that we can do in service of inclusion when we welcome differences and we're willing to truly learn from them. Yeah, well, that it reminds me of this kind of change in the conversation around this idea of, of culture fit and and really the term culture fit falling out of favor, um, thankfully, right? Because I think for a lot of practitioners, they viewed that term as something that has kind of become weaponized to exclude people that don't think like us, that they won't, you know, don't look like us, don't go to the schools that we went to, um, don't have the same, uh, you know, interests as us. And, and you're starting to see more companies look at the concept of culture ad Right. And how do we how do we actually enhance the organization by bringing in different perspectives, different different viewpoints, um, not asking people to conform to our culture, but to enhance it. And one of the uh, you had a really interesting section in the series uh, in, in some of your points around what organizations can do to to further their DNI efforts. And one of the uh, one of the topics which, you know, you also kind of mentioned this uh, this challenge with it. I'm curious to kind of explore this with you a little bit. Um, the idea of, of really encouraging organizations to have frank and open conversations around race and how that can kind of uh, propel the organization forward in their thinking. Um, and I'm kind of curious, and you, you mentioned this you know, caveat in your point in the essay, you know, how, how can companies encourage their leadership teams, which are often you know, driven primarily by white men, to create space for these conversations? Well, <laughs> this is a really important um, 
I think, starting point for us. Like, until we can talk about race, we won't be able to do anything to improve many of the challenges that have been documented, you know, not just in our own research, but, you know, my goodness, droves and droves of research by scholars, uh, many of whom have even struggled to get the research published in um, in output um, in venues that um, reach broad groups such as uh, Harvard Business Review or many of the top academic journals. You know, a lot of time this research has been documented and published in niche journals that it'd be really, really hard for a practitioner to ever access it in the first place. Right. So, you know, we can keep collecting data for years and years and practitioners will never be able to access it. And um, faculty will still, you know, be concerned about whether or not the work itself is even valued and read by their colleagues. And, you know, that's not going to lead us to the kind of change that we need. You know, what we need is, is, is to have new approaches to talking about and thinking about race together. Um, you talked about the shift from anti-culture fit moving toward culture ad, um, which, you know, is definitely in keeping with the emphasis on authenticity. Um, I think millennials dedication and commitment to, uh, living out loud (laughs) and really pursuing their passion and, and not wanting to compromise their accommodate, but really, you know, having been accustomed through, through culture and through technology to, Um, speaking their truth in different ways. And so now in organizations, we have to figure out how to take what's been happening or what continues to happen all day long in the social media space to create a more intentional, productive space where it can be a rich exchange within the organization. So a couple of things here. One, to be mindful that as we shift to this culture ad perspective, um, we are still keeping on the table these conversations about structural inequalities. So the cultural ad perspective really invites and privileges a a nonconformist perspective from any dimension of difference. So you now have people from all backgrounds saying, yeah, I know what it feels like to be isolated. I know what it feels like to go against the grain. I know what it feels like to, you know, not feel like I'm part of the club. And so we can all have a shared conversation about that. Um, But we still need to double click on that conversation to get to the next level. And this is when we start to dig into some of the discomfort. Let's talk about the baked in structural inequalities that exist within our organizations from supply chain to consumer and everything that's happening in between. So when you're talking about race, people often shy away from those conversations because it immediately shifts to uh, people on one side of the table saying, hey, I don't want you to think I'm here just because I got some kind of special concession because I'm a racial minority. I earned my right to be here. So I get uncomfortable when people start talking about race because then it makes me feel like a target. Okay. And then on the other side, you have folks who are saying, look, 
I haven't done anything to hurt anybody. I'm not racist. You know, I don't even see race. I don't think about race. I don't attend to race. And now in having these conversations, it's making me feel like I'm a bad person. Right. Where do we go from there, Lars? <laughs> yeah. We we go in our own corners and right. we talk to people who we think will share our perspectives. We're very anxious about having conversations with one another. So I encourage us to really talk about racist practices, not racist people. Now, people engage in practices. Okay, there is a person who is making a hiring decision. There is a person who is completing a performance evaluation. Every time I finish teaching a course, there are a group of students who are completing course evaluations. And some of the comments, as we know from the data, they are biased in terms of gender, race, and various other demographic dimensions. Um, But if we talk about just the practices themselves as being racist or exclusionist versus welcoming and learning oriented practices, then we can feel like we're tackling this problem together. But the problem is the process and some of the habits and shared behaviors. It's not about just scapegoating, I guess, is the best word. Uh, One individual or a set of individuals uh, for being, quote unquote, the bad actors. It's kind of like with the Me Too movement. Yeah. So with the Me Too movement, you know, we had a lot of celebrity call outs for like a a good year plus. Uh, One after one, celebrity call outs. Here's another bad actor. Here's another bad actor. I'm not legitimating or excusing any of the actions that somebody engages in that, um, you know, that that create um, the sexual harassment and other forms of gender discrimination. You know, not legitimating that at all. But I think it's short sighted when we only focus on identifying the bad actors and not attacking the underlying culture and the power dynamics that would put people in positions where they are more vulnerable um, and would allow other people to take advantage of that vulnerability. And I think the same is true around race and, and racial inclusion as well. So put our egos aside This is not about you proving that you're a good person or that you come from a good family. Uh, This is about trying to create a more humane, just, fair way for us to work and live together so that our society can flourish. And we have to decide if we're truly invested in that project. Uh, because the way we've been doing it thus far is it's not working. <laughs> you know, our planet is suffering on a number of levels. Um, even within the U.S., we're growing farther and farther apart, uh, and less and less skilled in our ability to hear one another and build relationships, even though the technology 
to facilitate the process is, is mind blowing. So we've got a million opportunities, but you know, we, we just don't have the skills. We're not employing the skills right now to do things differently. Um, and, and I truly believe that we can, but we just have to decide that we have that common goal and purpose. And then we'll engage in the tough conversations um, that will help us question our own practices and develop new ways of doing things that are more inclusive. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's so, you know, you, you, you raise a good point around just the times that we're in. I feel like in a lot of ways, it feels like we're regressing um, as opposed to progressing, you know, around some of the being able to have those conversations and being more polarized in our views and, um, and, you know, political and otherwise. And so I think it's, it's, it's now is it's, it's always an important time, but I think especially now, uh, you know, trying to kind of not be in a position where as a society, we, we, continue to backslide and regress, we can move forward. And I think having these conversations, frankly and openly, and, and I, I appreciate the way that you frame them. I think that's so important. Yeah. And these are, you know, it's our society. It's also what's happening on a global scale. Yeah. You know, it's just in terms of nationalism and xenophobia. And uh, just, it seems a, a, a lessening desire. Um, it definitely feels like a pendulum is shifting in a different direction. Um, I've, I need to, to maintain optimism to keep doing what I do. Sure. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> and, and there's still, there's still many, many folks like yourself and, you know, the editorial team at Harvard Business Review and, you know, many other colleagues who are saying, Hey, let's have this conversation. Let's do the work. And so, um, so I try not to adopt the language of, um, you know, of, of sort of, um, decline, um, or dismantling. Right. Yeah. Um, though it, it, you know, evidentially it, it often appears that way, especially when we would see what some kind of legislative and policy decisions are. But I would say in service of pendulum, because there's momentum, because that's what the pendulum can still swing. I just don't want to believe we would still have to go back and rebuild everything that uh, took decades and decades, you know, to get us to this point of this acknowledging and agreeing that diversity and inclusion should be a shared aspiration. In the same way, by the way, as it's just in terms of HR in general, like I'm, I'm a leadership and organizational behavior professor. And so we spent decades as a field um, trying to help researchers and executives um, and middle-level managers understand why workforce empowerment was important, why collaborative uh, decision-making was important, why peer leadership can be trusted. You know, so many different um, approaches toward work that really honor the dignity and the ingenious of the workforce and doesn't treat them as cogs in machines who can be easily replaced but really values them for who they are and what they can bring to the organization. Um, and, and there are many ways that the same things that we're seeing around diversity and inclusion, they're also calling into question many of our core assumptions and, and practices around the best models for HR. And so I want to see that sense pendulum moving back in the direction of workforce empowerment and inclusion 
uh, so that we can truly have generative experiences at work and that work won't feel like um, a burden or an obligation uh, that lacks fulfillment, just something for us to kind of check the box, get it done, you know, get some money, buy some bread, go to bed, get up in the morning and do it again. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting you say that. Uh, I had a uh, recorded the podcast recently with the CHRO uh, of a company out of uh, Paris called Mazars. And when I was asking him, you know, his views on the future of HR and kind of what he saw part of his, the scope of his role being, um, one of the terms that he, he mentioned that I'd never heard before uh, is increasing the self-esteem of employees. Hmm. And that really resonated with me and it just made me think you know what you know what if that was a driver for all hr executives and hr teams like how can they how can they do that how can they how can they help employees kind of get more of that feeling from work and it just uh it, it kind of connects to the point uh you just made about the the role of hr and it just uh, it was it was one of those profound uh aspects of the conversation that I, I continue to think about afterwards. So, um, yeah, I think that there's, there's so much opportunity for the field and, and I want to just thank you for the work that you're doing. I think that you're, you're really, uh, you know, the, the work you're doing is transformative. The conversations you're raising, um, I will include a link to the HBR series in the show description. So for listeners that want to read that and go deeper, which I encourage you to do, um, and we probably have, uh, about a, a half dozen questions we need to get to. So we might need to get a part two of this if you're willing to come back. Cause, uh, I, I really, I really enjoyed it. So thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Lars. Thanks for listening to this episode of 21st Century HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this or read stories from the 21st Century HR Fast Company series, go to 21stCenturyHR.com. And if you want to make your podcast just a little more awesome, be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform your ears desire. You'll find all the subscribe links on the website. And if you enjoy the podcast, do me a favor and share it with your peers, your network, your boss, and your CEO. Help me get the podcast into the ears of anyone who wants to know what HR and recruiting looks like when done really well. They'll thank you for it, and so will I. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next episode.